let's, we're going to pick up actually in verse number 36b. Kind of rough break there um, in the text, but um, 36b, I think it picks up with 37 on the screen, but you'll, you'll see how it fits together. All right, you ready? When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in, who, in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word that you've given to us. We come before you in the humble and yet powerful name of your son, Jesus, the one to whom we've just read about. We submit ourselves today underneath the authority of your word. Lord, teach us and instruct us and show us. Father, I pray, I pray this morning for this church. I pray for myself, Lord. Lord, there are those of us in this midst that could be said of us what you said of Peter, that Satan has desired to sift us as wheat. And my prayer, it's the same prayer that you prayed, Jesus. I pray in your strong and mighty name that you would give us faith, that our faith would not fail. And Lord, I pray that we would be people who lean into that, who lean into that prompting and leading of the Holy Spirit, even in today's message, Lord. Even in today's, I pray that we will rightly respond to the truth of your word. For your fame, we pray that. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. Good night. There's a ton in that text, right? It's a, a little bit lengthier um, text than what we've been taking it, and there's a ton in there. Um, but like, don't feel like any way sorry for me because I've had like 20 hours this week to work on it. If you're gonna feel sorry for anybody, feel sorry for Pastor Brian Lord, who's in the Lexington campus. We prayed for Autumn Cecil uh, this morning. We really should have prayed for Brian Lord, who we should pray for because... 
Pastor Tony is at the hospital with his wife and rightfully so. And so Pastor Brian found out at eight o'clock last night that he'll be preaching uh, this morning. So, you know, the good thing of doing two campuses because I was able to like forward my sermon over to Brian. So hopefully he can like put uh, my bullet in his gun and shoot it. But nevertheless, you see this is a complex, a lot happening in this sermon, even some surprising stuff happening in this text of scripture. I mean, look at what's said in there and we'll get to it with the prophet Isaiah. I mean, God's hardened their hearts. God's hid himself from them so that they would not turn and be healed. I mean, what the heck is going on there? And we'll get there, but here's the kind of main idea. If you wanna take notes, you can do that on the back of the skinny. Here's the idea of this whole text and of this sermon. The idea is this, in light of Jesus, when I mean in light of Jesus, I mean just the whole shooting match. In light of Jesus is coming, in light of Jesus is being put, being made a man, his incarnation, in light of Jesus' life, in light of Jesus as a revelation of God, in light of Jesus' teaching, certainly in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, in light of Jesus, all of it, there is an urgency. Emphasis in this text is on the word urgency. There is an urgency for every person to believe And we could add to that for every person to keep on believing, for every person to believe and every one of us to keep on believing in him for salvation and for the forgiveness of sins. That's what this text is about. There's an urgency placed on every one of us to believe and then also for us to keep on believing in Jesus. Every one of us here probably can name a person that you know Maybe you know them personally. Maybe you know them because of somebody you followed on Twitter or Facebook or somebody else, a pastor, somebody that you know who once claimed to be a follower of Christ. They claimed to be a Christian and they lasted for a period of time, maybe, maybe a few weeks, maybe months, maybe even years, maybe long years. And then for whatever reason, they fizzled out. Maybe they formally renounce faith. I know people like that, that, hey, I'm not gonna believe in God anymore. I'm gonna believe in Jesus anymore. I'm, a, I'm gonna be an agnostic. I'm gonna be an atheist. I'm gonna be something else. Maybe they formally renounced faith or maybe they just were given over into sin. Maybe they disqualified themselves and disqualified the lifestyle and they believe now, hey, I can't come back to Christ. And so now they're just living, not a Christian lifestyle, but a, a sinful lifestyle that every one of us knows that. That whenever the the reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, these guys, whenever they came to understanding like theology proper, one of the things that they come to believe in is something we call the perseverance of the saints. And that is true and that is right. We're gonna get to that. Who are the true saints in Christ? Who are the true Christians? Not the people that have been baptized, although baptism is important. Not the people that have confessed Jesus, although confession and profession is important. Not the people that have shaken a pastor's hand or walked an aisle, although all of those are good things. Not the people that have prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into their heart. Not those people. Who are the true saints of Christ? Those people who persevere all through their lives in the faith. That's what this text is about. This text is an encouragement to us on two fronts. For those of you who have yet to place faith in Jesus Christ, and there's still breath in your lungs, and there's still blood coursing through your veins, and you still have a mind that can comprehend Jesus and his grace, we would say this, today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts. Do not reject Jesus. Do not turn away. In doing so, you presume upon his grace. And see, that's what's happened to these people here. 
These Jews that Jesus is now hiding himself from, Jesus, as we'll see in the text, Jesus has, has done miracles in front of them. Jesus has done all of this, and yet they have presumed upon God's mercy and grace, and they're rejecting Jesus. And some of you may even today reject Jesus. I rejected him. Even this morning, I was thinking about two instances that I know that God was calling me to Jesus Christ. He was calling me to his saving side. One was a Sunday morning, my grandfather was preaching in Versailles, Kentucky, Glens Creek Baptist Church. And I was standing somewhere in the congregation. And I remember at the end, my grandfather was giving an, an invitation. He was given the, the invitation to the, and we were singing the, the song. And I believe it was even just as I am as the same song. That's what kind of jogged my memory back to that. And my grandfather was standing there and he was pleading with lost sinners. He was pleading with me like, I will plead with you even today. Do not turn away. If you've yet to receive Christ as Savior, do not reject him. Do not turn away. And I remember holding on to the back of the pew and just kind of gripping it a teenage kid, but I understood that I was a sinner in need of, of a savior. And yet I, I said, no. There was another instance where we were, um, I was a boy scout. We were out camping and a tor- and a, this horrible storm came up and a, a tornado like touched down one hillside over and there are people driving around yelling at us, get, get cover, get cover. And we're like, we're in stinking fields in tents. Where are we supposed to be get cover? Remember they had, a, they had built this huge teepee and this teepee blew over on these kids and we were running trying to get it off. And I was so scared. And yet there was something in me that was saying like, repent. Like, do you know that you're gonna go to heaven? You don't know, you're not gonna. And I refused to do it. Do not refuse Jesus. Do not presume upon his grace. That's what this text is about. There's an urgency here. It's what the apostle Paul would say is, today is the day of salvation. That yes, we understand that God is patient. He is patient, not not wishing, not wanting, not desiring anyone to perish. God is patient. And yet there comes a time when God's patience will wear out. The judgment day will, will, will come. In fact, we see that in a text of scripture of 2 Peter verses chapter 3, uh, 9 through 10. We don't have time to look at that. But that's what we see in that text is even that God is patient. But then there is also the day of the Lord and it will come as a thief. That's what Peter writes. It will come in a time that you do not know it. Do not, do not put it away. And for those of you that are believers and your affections have run cold, I pray that even through this, that you would see Jesus as glorified. That Jesus has come the first time as the Passover lamb in order to save sinners. But Jesus will return as a second time as a lion to devour sinners. And we must believe upon him to be saved. This is kind of the turning point in, one of the turning points in John's uh, gospel. That between chapter 12 and 13, there's gonna be a shift. This is the end. Like this is Jesus's final plea to the Jews. This is Jesus' final address to the Jews. This is Jesus one last time crying out to them and asking them to believe. Starting next week in John chapter 13 and for the remainder of the gospel of John, you're gonna see a different tone. The tone will change because it's Jesus spending time with his disciples, spending time with his followers, instructing them, teaching them, washing their feet, praying for them, praying for believers. And so this is the end of Jesus's public ministry. This is his farewell address, if you will. And so let's pick back up in um, verse number 36. Let me read verse number 36 and 37. 
so that it'll be fresh in your minds and then we'll talk about it. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Though he had done many, though he had done so many signs before them, here's the problem, they still did not believe in him. That what you see in 36b is Jesus, he's hiding himself from them. And this is like a, this is like an acting out of a judicial warning to them. As Jesus has just said, and we looked at it last week in verse number 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtakes you. And now what's happening for them is the light is about to go out. Jesus is going to hide himself. Jesus is withdrawing from them. Jesus is judiciously, justly, he is looking at them and he's judging them. And that's why this verse about them having hard hearts. But this comes, this taking the light from them, it comes as a result of their unbelief. It is a result of their unbelief. And once again, we have within the gospel of John, the theme of unbelief. Now, unbelief is different than doubt. Doubt is not the same. Doubt is somewhat normative in the Christian life questions and struggles and trials and having to press in, those sorts of things are, are normative. I mean, scripture teaches us the just shall live by faith. And you and I, we serve of God that we've yet to see, right? No one's seen God. None of us in here, we haven't seen God. We trust and we bow before a savior that you and I have yet to, we've yet to touch. We've yet to lay our, our hands, our physical hands upon Jesus, that Jude tells us in a very short book, one of the last ones right before Revelation to be written, Jude instructs Christians and says, have mercy on those who doubt. Why are we as Christians have mercy on those who doubt? Because God has, I believe, mercy on believers who sometimes find themselves in seasons of doubt. That God understands the fickleness of our faith, praise the Lord. And God helps us with a real power to help us to persevere in our faith. In fact, Jude even says it is Jesus who is keeping us in the faith. He's keeping us, sustaining us. He's going to be the one that's going to enable us to present us before him. But what we have here is something quite different. What we have here is the unbelief of the Jews. And what unbelief is, is unbelief is a refusal to believe. Look at what verse number 37. Though he, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. I say this often. Some people say, and I've met people that say this, that if I could just see a real bona fide miracle, if I could just see God do something miraculous, I would then believe. And the answer to that is you will not. No, 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 you will not. And look at here with these Jews. I mean, multiple signs have been done. In fact, the first part of the book of John is called the book of signs. There are seven signs that have been laid out, seven miracles that Jesus has done in the book of John. Now, Jesus did more miracles, but John picks up the number seven for the number of completion and says, there are seven, and we've already looked at six of them. They started with Jesus in the wedding in Cana, turning water to wine, and the sixth one was Jesus resurrecting Lazarus from the dead, like kind of one of the greatest one. The seventh one that is left out there for Jesus to perform will be his own resurrection. That's all that's left. They have seen six. They've heard about six signs occurring and And yet they still did not believe in him. And here is why. And this is the same reason why you would not believe if you saw a bona fide miracle. The reason why is unbelief is, unbelief stems from 
rebellion and not ignorance. Unbelief, it stems from rebellion and not ignorance. Paul says it like this in Romans the eighth chapter. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Indeed, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The mind that is set on the flesh, the natural mind, there's a hostility, what Paul says, between us and us, toward us and towards God. That our natural disposition towards God is one of hostility, is one of rebellion, a refusal to submit to God and to his law. And that's what we're seeing unfolding in this text, that their unbelief is fruit of their hard hearts. That's the real issue. The real issue at stake here is the fact that their hearts have been made hard. Their hearts are hard. Look at verse number 38. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Let's they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. God has predicted their unbelief. Their unbelief did not take God by surprise. In fact, some 700 years before they've rejected Jesus, God has already prophesied their rejection. That John is building out a theology of unbelief, if you would. As John lays this out, he's building out an argument for unbelief and John grabs Isaiah for scriptural support. Isaiah is one of the major prophets of the Bible. It's a whole book in the, you know, in the Old Testament. It's a 66 uh, chapters in that book. Two of them, two very important chapters would be Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53. Probably the two most important chapters in the whole book, chapter 6, chapter 53. Here John quotes from both of those. This is a prediction is to indicate ultimately that God is in control. All throughout this text, we've seen God is in control. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over all things, including even his own son's death. That's why Jesus again and again, he'll say, my hour has not come. My hour has not come. My hour has not come. And I believe it was last week. He says, my hour has come. No one takes my life, but I lay down my life. It's the truth that Jesus is in total control. The father is in total control. Jesus's death was a sovereign death. But not only has God predicted it, but God has planned on their unbelief. I'm sure you've noticed it by now. Notice how the, how the language changes in verse, between verses 37 and 39. In verse number 37, they did not believe. In verse number 39, they could not believe. Isn't that troubling when the Bible does stuff like that? Well, which is it? Did they not believe or could they not believe? Because for us in our minds, we don't do well with tension. Well, which one is it? One, it seems like well, one of them's the chicken and the other one's the egg, right? Which one came first? Was it that they did not believe or that they could not believe? And the answer, I think, to that is, is yes. Remember what's happening at this time? I think this will help. Remember what's happening at this time? What's the, the feast that's being, um, that's being offered up? What feast is happening in Jerusalem during this time? Passover, right? That's what's happening here. So Jesus is that perfect Passover lamb that's going to be sacrificed. So what you see happening between what the events in Exodus, for those of you that have known nothing about Passover, that's okay. Like I, you know, there was a time when I didn't either. And you can read about Passover. It happens in Exodus. I think it starts about in 
Well, the plagues start in Exodus uh, 5. I think, uh, I think it's Exodus 12 discusses Passover. But anyway, what's happening here is not only is the timing run concurrently or, per, or parallel to Passover, now some of the events are happening that are running parallel to Passover. So if you understand Passover, it will help you in understanding what's happening here in the life of Jesus. Okay, in Passover, Passover comes as God's, um, as, as God's uh, provision when the 10th plague hits. So there's been nine plagues that have happened in Exodus. The 10th plague is the plague of the death angel is gonna come and kill the firstborn of everyone who does not have the blood of a Passover lamb applied to the doorpost. So that's the, that's the Passover. That's the provision. You know, death angel's coming, take this blood, apply it. When the death angel comes, he's gonna pass over you. But listen, it's the what plague? Which one is the death angel coming? It's the 10th plague. Why has there been 10 plagues? Like, why didn't one plague do it, right? I mean, have you, have you, any of you felt like you've been in the midst of a plague? Right. Those of you that are farmers, you know, that are, grew up as farmers and maybe it's, like, it's a drought and you felt like, man, this must be a plague from God. Maybe it was like, I remember we raised tobacco and one year we got Johnson grass in our tobacco and it was absolutely horrible. I mean, I know they make some stuff that you can spray that will prevent it, but we didn't buy this stuff to spray and we got Johnson grass. It was so bad that my dad took, ho like gave us all hose, what gave us, meaning me and my older brother. And we raised like 20 something acres of tobacco that year. We got to go through the, go through each row, hoeing out this tobacco, right? And then my dad started noticing, he's like, you guys are breaking off the bottom leaves. So he took our hoe handles and sawed them in half and made us crawl through the, I'm not lying, I'm not making this up. Hoeing out, like there's nothing worse. I get, well, I'm sure there is, but I don't know that I've like, had it. Then doing that right there, then hoeing Johnson grass out of, like some of you are laughing, you know what I'm talking about out of tobacco. And I remember like, God, this is God's, God's judgment has come. Why did it take 10 plagues in order for, for Pharaoh to finally do what Pharaoh was asked to do before the first plague hit, which was let my people go. The reason why is because it says in the text of scripture in Exodus, it says 10 times Pharaoh hardened his heart. Every time after every plague, Moses stood before Pharaoh and said, now Pharaoh, God has declared, let my people go. And it says in there 10 times that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And it also says in 10 times that in God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 10 times Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And 10 times God, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And here's the reality. Here's a sobering reality that those who persistently hardened their heart against God, you may find themselves hardened by him. That those who persistently, Pharaoh, these Jews, even Israel during the time of, of Isaiah's prophecy and Isaiah's ministry, who hardened their heart, the sobering reality for those who persistently hardened their hearts against God may be that they find themselves hardened by him. A couple things I want to say about this, because this is really our problem. Like, I know that we, we in some Christian circles, we want to make a big to-do about our will. Is our will free or is it not free? 
But the real issue isn't with our will, with our volition. The real problem is with our hearts. That's the real problem. Let me say a couple of things about that. Number one, a hard heart is our natural, our natural edemic. That means in Adam's state. That all of those who have been born after Adam have been born with a state of a hard heart towards God. Remember we saw that in Romans 8. The natural, the natural man, his mind is on natural things, is on the flesh, and he is hostile towards God. His mind will not, cannot, does not submit to God. That what the Bible teaches is that we are enslaved to sin, that we are in bondage to sin, that the natural condition of our hearts is towards sin. It's to be hard. It's to be hostile toward God. That's the natural condition. If I take this my Bible, and I drop it on the ground, what's going to happen? Natural law is going to take over. And the natural law of gravity will take over and my Bible will fall and hit. Now, if I wanted to suspend my Bible up in the air, there has to be a force, right? It's happening right now. There's a force outside of my Bible that is suspending it in the air. There's a force that is working against natural law a force that is suspending it and holding it up. And the same thing that is true in the Bible. The natural law, like gravity, is the natural law of sin. And God's restraining grace in our life, not his salvific grace, but his restraining grace for common grace that's good for all people. It restrains us and holds us up. But then there are times when God can remove that and let our hearts fall, let us fall. That's what happens in Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, God, removes that and lets him naturally fall toward a harder, harder, harder heart. And the same thing's happening here to these Israelites. God is, in a way, he is removing his restraining grace from them that was suspending them. He's lifted that from them and he's letting them fall. And here's the thing, God does that even today. God does that in our lives. And also we must, I think we must come to recognize this, that God never forces the sinner to sin. We would all say, amen, that's true. Why would we say that? Because we know that sin is natural inside of us. But listen, here's the other truth to that. Faith isn't something that you alone must muster up. But the Bible teaches us that faith is a gift from God which is absolutely great news. Like, in fact, we could look at it in Ephesians, the second chapter. Ephesians, the second chapter, Paul starts off by just declaring this, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now, in work of, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires. See, that's why it's more than volition carrying out the desires of the body, the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the natural state of man. But then Paul writes, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he's made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up for him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And then Paul follows it up by saying, and this, 
And this is not your own doing. But it is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. What's the it? I think it's the faith. Faith is what he's saying. What's the gift? It's faith. Faith is a gift that God gives to us, which causes us to boast all the more in him, which causes us to glorify him. And even whenever our affections run cold, even whenever for those of us who are struggling and the doubt comes and questions come and we wonder, like it forces us to see faith as a gift and to cry out because it's not something you deserve. It's not something you can even demand, but it forces us to look to God and say, God, give me the gift of faith. Help me in my faith. All right. Number one, a hard heart is our natural edemic state. Number two, a harder heart occurs because, we, because of our refusal to believe. A harder heart occurs because of our refusal to believe. Really simply, we could just say it like this. Look, rejecting the gospel is not going to soften your heart. You, you would say, uh, no duh, right? No, rejecting the gospel is not going to make your heart any softer. It's only going to make it harder. But I think this is important for us. One of the early church fathers, I, I believe it was Augustine, he said this, the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And this is the picture. Don't think that the word of God don't think reading the word of God and preaching the word of God isn't doing something to your heart. If you are not responding positively with faith and repentance to the word of God, being read, being taught, being preached, then guess what? It is hardening your heart. God's word being faithfully preached, God's word being read, God's word being studied, it always has an effect. It is powerful. It is having an effect. Either it is melting, melting the ice, or it's hardening the clay. The question is, is which is the disposition of your heart? Ice or is it clay? That's what's happening in this text. The Jews have hardened their heart. They're refusing to believe. Jesus doesn't meet their expectations in a Messiah. Jesus isn't talking about overthrowing governments. Jesus is talking about humility. Jesus doesn't come riding into the city in a great white horse with a sword drawn. Jesus comes riding in on a donkey. Jesus is talking about the way up is the way down. The way to life is through death. We don't want to hear any of that. Jesus isn't meeting their expectations. Jesus isn't the Messiah they want, not the Messiah they've longed for, and they are rejecting him because their hearts are cold and hard. And every time Jesus preaches, every time they hear Jesus's words, their hearts are growing harder and harder and harder and harder. And the same is true today. The preaching of the gospel must always be met with repentance and faith. We always should respond positively to the preaching of the gospel. Otherwise, it will, it can harden our hearts. Number three about hard hearts, even the hardest heart will still be used by God for his glory. But just as God used the hardening of Pharaoh's heart for his glory and good, I mean, think about it. They had 10 opportunities to see God's power 
in every one of those plagues, they saw God's power. They saw God's provision. They saw God's might. The Exodus opens up and they don't know a whole lot. The, the people of God don't know a whole lot about God. They've all but forgotten God. They've been indoctrinated into Egypt, into Egypt, into Egyptian, probably religion and Egyptian life. And God is revealing himself to his people throughout the book of Exodus. And one of those instances he's doing that is in the plagues. He's showing the man. I mean, if nothing else, you go like, gosh, I want that guy on my side, right? That's who I want on my side is I want God on my side. They're beginning to understand that. They're beginning to understand who they are in God and that God must love them because God is providing for them. God is taking them out of, out of releasing them out of Egypt. And the same thing is happening here. God is using these Jews' unbelief. He's using their rejection of him to accomplish his plan. It is because of their hard hearts and the rejection of Jesus that they ultimately, in just a few chapters, they will crucify Christ. But that has always been the plan from the beginning. Before Genesis 1 opens up, there was a plan to redeem man. Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. God already knew, already set a plan. And how is he accomplishing in that plan? He's using their hard hearts to do it. He's using their hard hearts and rejection of him. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts, because the Jews reject him, the way's opened up. It's part of his plan from always, but the way is opened up for Gentiles like you and I to come to believe in faith, to be included in the family of God. That's what we see in the book of Acts. Gentiles flooding into the family of God being grafted into the family of God because they reject him. And the next section of what we see is we see the contrast between real belief and superficial belief. Look at what it says, I think, in starting in verse number 31. I'm sorry, 41. It goes back to Isaiah. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not, so they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Here what John is doing is he is introducing another group of, of folks for us to think about. You have those who downright reject God, reject Jesus, those who refuse to believe, those who are caught up in their unbelief. Now we have a new group of people. And these people, they do, uh, as Pastor Brian says always uh, a lot, he said, they do the head fake, right? They do this nod, this juking God. Into, hey, I'm gonna believe, but nah, I'm really not gonna believe. That's what you have. It's what uh, Jesus talks about when he gives the, the parable of the different soils. And Jesus talks about being a sower, sowing seed. And the seed, again, it always, it always has a reaction to the soil. It does something. And what he says, Jesus says, there's one group of people in that group that he says, like, it looks like they produce fruit. It looks like they believe. But then whenever trials and tribulation come, they wither away. The same thing may be true of us. There are those who will downright reject God reject Jesus, but then there's some who will appear to believe in him, but they are unwilling to pay the costs associated with following Jesus, and their faith is a superficial faith. Said it already. Real belief, real faith is a belief and a faith that perseveres unto the end. And he says, let me introduce this case study for you. Let me contrast two types of believers for you is what John is saying. The first one is Isaiah. The other is these Jews. Isaiah is the prophet of God. 
As we said, and Isaiah will be sent to the people, like these people, Jewish people, people who will refuse to listen. In fact, in Isaiah 6, which is a key chapter, like I said, whenever Isaiah sees the glory of God, part of this text, he sees the glory of God in that the voice comes and the voice tells Isaiah, commissions Isaiah. He asks Isaiah, who will go for us? Who will tell them? Isaiah says, hear me, 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 send me. And then God follows it up by saying, okay, you're gonna go, I'm gonna send you, but here's the deal. They're not gonna listen. They're not gonna hear you. They're not gonna respond to you. Those of, you, us, those of us that teach Kids Point, those of us that have done student ministry, you understand like what Isaiah went through. You're gonna preach and you're gonna say a bunch of words, but they're not gonna respond because they have hard hearts. It's like Isaiah say, like, hey, what's the point? But nevertheless, that's not what Isaiah says. Isaiah goes and Isaiah does what God commissioned him to do. Isaiah preaches faithfully, prophesies. He writes, he tells, he warns the people. Is there a huge revival? No. Do a bunch of them get saved? No. Do they return to God and start following his law? No. What do they do? They saw Isaiah in two. That's their response. Now that's not in the Bible. You, you'll look that up. Like I remember when I was a new believer, I wanted to find where it said that Peter was crucified upside down. So I read my whole New Testament trying to get there and never found it. I went to my grandfather, Paul, I got all these colorful uh, paper clips I've been putting in my Bible and marking it up. Where does it say that Peter was crucified upside down? He says, it's not in the Bible. Well, how do we know that? He said, well, church history tells us. In the same way, church history in the Talmud tells us that Isaiah is sawn in two. He, the writer of Hebrews picks it up. In Hebrews 11, he says, and some were sawn in two. I think he's referencing Isaiah. What's the problem? They have hard hearts. They don't wanna listen. But why didn't Isaiah quit? Why didn't Isaiah stop? Why didn't Isaiah say, God, I'm tired of being made a fool. I'm tired of preaching. I'm tired of telling. I'm tired of do. Why didn't he say all of that? Here's why. Because Isaiah had saw something that he could not unsee. A few years ago, Luann and I, we went to, uh, you guys sent us, graciously sent us to Miami for a pastor's retreat with Acts 29. We were in there and it was one of the sessions was coming to an end and we were about to be dismissed from the, for the whole day and for the whole evening to go to, uh, to go sightsee in, in Miami. And um, Pastor Matt Chandler, who's the president of Acts 29, he gets up and he says, all right, how many of you in here are planning on going to South Beach? And we were in that group. We'd already, we packed our baby. We're gonna go to South Beach. He goes, hey, 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 listen, listen, listen. Be careful in South Beach because there's things that you will see in South Beach that you cannot unsee. And he was referring to, those of you who know anything about that, there's a lot of immorality and uh, clothing is optional on South Beach, right? Like it wasn't for us, but it is for a lot of people. And that's what he's saying. But listen, listen, Isaiah saw something that he could not unsee in chapter six of Isaiah. And it's what propels him for the rest, for the next 60 chapters of Isaiah, preaching to a hard-hearted people. What did he see? He saw God's glory. In fact, in Isaiah, it says this, in Isaiah 6, 1, it's like in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And then this is what Isaiah says, I saw him high and lifted up. High and lifted up. Does that sound familiar? That was last week's sermon. Jesus said, I will be high, I will be lifted up. Like that's what Jesus has been saying over and over again. We said it's two things. It's both a picture of Jesus's crucifixion, but also a picture of Jesus's glory. Look at what's happening here in this text with these superficial believers. Look at what the text says here about them. 
the contrast between Isaiah and these superficial believers isn't found in their belief. Do you see that? It's not found in their belief, but rather it's found in the object in which they glory in. The glory that they, these superficial believers, the glory that they loved, they loved They valued the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There's their problem. As opposed to Isaiah, who sees God high and lifted up and believes in him. Listen, persevering faith comes as Jesus' death in your place is more glorious to you than anything else. What enables you to be like Isaiah, to have faith that perseveres in hardships and in trials and in social ostracism like what they were facing? I mean, man, I know tons of people who refuse to believe in God because they know that whenever I tell my friends, when I tell my lost friends, when I tell my colleagues, when I tell them that I've become a believer, they're going to make fun of me. They're going to think of me as some nitwit, some idiot, some religious fanatic, something like that. And I I can't do it. And yet what Jesus says is, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. That's what's wrong with these Jews here. That's why their faith isn't a real and a genuine faith. It's because they fear, they glory in the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. Rather than seeing Jesus' death in their place and glorying in that thing and treasuring that and valuing that and loving that, they're still glorying in man. The genuine faith rooted in the glory of God leads us to persevere in our faith. Verse number 44. We'll quickly end here. This is Jesus' final sermon his final public sermon, I should say, made to the Jews, his final plea. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and yet does not keep them, Look, I do not judge him for, I did not come to the world to judge the world, but I came to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words, he has a judge. The revelation that I'm giving, the words that I'm speaking, me, in light of Jesus, we should, there's an urgency for us to believe. The words that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have the Father who sent me, has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me to say. Jesus' final message is real simple. It's the same message that he's been hammering out for 12 chapters. It's this, that salvation, eternal life, escaping God's just judgment only comes through his sacrificial son, Jesus. There is no other way, no other plan, no plan B. Faith alone in the shed blood of Christ alone is both plans A through Z. 
the only plan. That the Father has authoritatively appointed the Son as the only means of salvation. That is not the idea shared in our culture today. What the idea is shared in our culture today is that all religions are the same. That we all have the same God. That all roads are the same since all religions are made out of the same pavement. All religions are saying basically the same thing. Be a good person, love others, do some good things in the world. But that is not what Christianity teaches. Christianity is simply this. Faith alone and the shed blood of Jesus alone. For your salvation alone. To God's glory alone. John Piper said it like this. The truth is, if you don't have Jesus as your Savior, then you do not have God as your Father. That's the summation of what Jesus is telling these Jews. If you do not have me, if you do not believe in me, then you do not have the Father. The message is simple. Look to Jesus and be saved. If you are a believer, keep looking to him and do not be saved. I think it's Robert Murray McShane who said, for every one glance you take at self, take 10 glances to Christ. Keep looking to Jesus. The truth for all of us here is the sobering words by Jesus. It's simply this, don't trifle with God. Don't play ridiculous games with the gospel. Even for those of us here who are believers, don't think that you will escape your sin. The writer of Proverbs says, can a man carry a hot coal next to his chest and not get burned? And the answer to that is no. No, he cannot. No one can. And if you're here today, and you're carrying a hot coal next to your chest, a sin, a pet sin, a struggle, Seek help. Confess it. Let, shed light on it by sharing it. Help me. Pray for me. I want to repent. I want to turn. If you're struggling in your faith, those are good words to start with. I'm struggling in my faith right now. I'm just struggling to believe. Help me. Help me. Pray that prayer. We sing it often. Oh, for grace to trust you more. Pray that. Sing that. Say that. God, give me grace to trust you more and more and more in my life. And if you are here today and you've yet to submit to Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Gosh, I got great news for you. Today is the day of salvation. Whosoever will. Do you want to be saved? Is there breath in your lungs? Then you could be saved and come today and be saved. Come today and pray. Come today believing and trusting. Come today and renouncing and turning from your sin. Saying, God, I've sinned against you. I know I have. Do you need a list? I can give you a list. I can provide you with a list. And I want to say to you today that I'm sorry for the sins that I've committed against you. Isaiah 51, David says, against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned. That's a good place to start. God, I've sinned against you. You and you alone have I sinned against. And Lord, I'm 
want to come today and I want to say, I'm sorry for the sins that I've committed against you. I want to come today saying, Lord, don't take the joy of my salvation. Fill me. Don't take your spirit from me, Lord. Gosh, what a great way to start. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come to a time where we remember your death for sinners like us, I pray, Lord, that you would be near to us. I pray, Lord, as I pray so often, that you would superintend this moment. May your spirit be here. May your spirit be at work. May your spirit grant faith and repentance and turning. And Lord, sometimes we have blinders on to our own sin. Sometimes our eyes are blind from it. I pray that you would remove those blinders. And Lord, even we know from Scripture that the enemy blinds the minds of unbelievers. God, I would pray and I would ask you, I would intercede on their behalf and I would ask you, Lord, that by your sovereign will and by your sovereign work, would you remove the blinders? Would you unblind the minds and the eyes of unbelievers that they may see you? They may see your death, Jesus, in their place and they may glory in that. May glory in that. For sinners like me in the room that just need to be reminded of how meek and mild you are to anyone who would turn. May as we remember your shed blood and may as we remember your broken body, may we, re- may we remember how meek and mild you are. As we eat this, may this by faith stir our affections and our love for you. Those of us who are just letting our hearts drift, fighting the hardness of our heart, we're letting the natural law take over. Lord, help us. May we see that. May we fight against that. Be near to us in this time. In your name we pray. Amen.